Welcome back to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm your host, Justin Mart. And this week, we're discussing central bank digital currencies. This is, I think, an often neglected portion of the cryptocurrency development space, but an important one to pay attention to. It represents the adoption of crypto tech, or at least digital tech, by central banks and bringing fiat money onto a digital realm. This clearly has implications for cryptocurrency and the development and adoption of crypto worldwide. With me today, I have Catherine Gu. She is the protocol and CBDC lead at Visa, thinking about all these issues and in close communication with central banks and other institutions. Let's dive into it. Not to be like, you know, spicy at the start or whatever, but I think that central <laughs> bank digital currencies are not always people's first choice of the most exciting topic at hand. Right, right. But that is what we're going to chat about today. Yeah. And I bet you have a thesis or a picture on central bank digital currencies, a.k.a. CBDCs, mm -hmm. that uh, can help me understand a little bit of like the bull case for why they're important, why they're necessary. Definitely. So maybe starting with a definition, what yeah, exactly what is, is yeah. CBDC and stuff? I mean, in the most simplest fashion, right? A central bank digital currency really represents the liability of central bank money. Today, we already use central bank money, and that's in physical cash. Physical cash is the only form that represents the liability of central banks. Now, all is happening is they try to digitize everything so that the CBDC lives entirely in a digital form. So, you know, the analogy is back in the days, we, I, I guess, you know, we already have commercial bank money and that's the sort of deposits and stuff you you have. And now, you know, we have this new version, which is stable coins, which is kind of like private version of fiat money. Central bank money is sort of just different in terms of where the liability sits. And because it comes from the central bank, uh, the idea is that it should be safer, right? Because central banks should be the safest type of entity who can issue money. And if you have liability holding against them, then uh, you would think that this should be the safest type of money that you can hold. Can I ask a silly foundational question? Mm -hmm. So when we say central bank digital currency, the word central bank is pretty important there. Yeah. I equate central bank to the Fed in the United States. Right. And essentially, when I hear CBDC or central bank digital currency, I'm thinking, oh, it is a digital currency that is issued by a government. It is yes. equivalent to fiat money. Mm -hmm. And that's a correct sort of framework for this? Yes, I would think so, because you know, it's a different form factor of money. And the way we say it is we already have fiat money today. All we're trying to do is have a different form. It can live, say, on a blockchain. It doesn't have to, but it is something in which represents the central bank's liability and entirely lives uh, in a digital format. That's all. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's talk to the second part of that, right? So we have mm -hmm. central bank. We know what that is. Now it's digital. Right. Now we're in the blockchain space. So I think all of us, when we hear the word digital, we immediately think blockchain. Yeah. But you made that distinction. You said it doesn't have to live on a blockchain. Right. So when we talk about CBDCs, what is the digital part of that? What does that represent? So that's a great question. And I think this comes to the nuances to do with how CBDC can be designed. And, you know, we're at a very early stage for sure at this moment. I think probably this idea around CBDC started, I would say, back in 2018. All of that wave really begin with two events. One is the, the fact that Libra come out and say, we want to do stable coins. And then the second thing is China has announced something about, you know, the PBOC is doing something about the digital yuan. So these two events sort of prompted a lot of central banks taking a much closer look of what's happening in the state, uh, in the space, because, you know, as stable coins grow, 
they become part of this monetary supply into the economy. Now, what is the role of the central bank? Central banks are public sector. They're trying to regulate the economic activity such that, you know, a lot of these central banks have a mandate of maintaining inflation. So how do they inf maintain inflation? That's by controlling the supply of money constantly and trying to measure those. But, you know, if you have people like the private sector issuing private money into the economy, then in a way, this monitoring sovereignty and how you can really regulate correctly based on all these sort of important responsibility a central bank should have, you know, now they're a bit kind of thinking, well, we need to take a look at this more seriously. And should we be producing something similar to that and to kind of allow people? I think that's not to say, sorry, just, just to finish, because that's not to say every single central bank is thinking from that foundation, because a huge portion of central banks are thinking about it from the financial inclusion aspect in the sense, you know, without the fact that you have a digital version of cash, uh, what are people in remote rural areas going to be doing, right? They can only have this physical form of cash. They probably don't even have a bank account because they might be too poor or unqualified for whatever reason. So there's a huge problem when it comes to financial inclusion on the unbanked. Mm. And central banks are thinking, well, now we already have these sort of new innovation technology available. Why not thinking about this central bank geocurrency that could be made available? Okay, so, so what I'm hearing here is Something happened in 2017, 2018 era. First yeah. off, Facebook announced Libra. They wanted to produce a stable coin. They're mm -hmm. at the scale and the size that that would be a very meaningful impact to the economy if the stable coin existed, but it's private supply. It would it would be a private company producing you know a stable coin that would impact the economic reality in the United States and elsewhere. And so there is a motivation from, at least in the States, the Fed and the central government, central banks, to regulate the money supply. And so that probably perked their ears up a little bit. And they said, okay, what's Facebook doing over there? Maybe we should pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. In addition to China having some you know, rumblings of CBDCs happening over there. Mm -hmm. So there's one aspect that I'm hearing you say is it's, hey, let's help, let's continue to regulate the monetary supply mm -hmm. in what would hopefully be a reasonable and you know proper manner. Right. <laughs> um, and then the second side, you mentioned this aspect of inclusion. Yes. So is the second side here more like, hey, the world is heading to a digital sphere anyway? In fact, Almost all of our central bank liabilities live on digital ledgers to begin with. Cash yeah. is a small portion of this. Exactly. And so we're just like, hey, let's get ahead of the trend anyway. So let's create some version of a central bank digital currency that's universally known and recognized. Absolutely. A digital version of cash. And because, you know, physical cash is expensive, right? We we still have certain countries and, you know, it's fascinating talking to these central banks. For example, I think in the Eastern Caribbean, like the, the cash usage today is still really heavy. And literally every single day they have an airplane flying physical cash between different islands just to facilitate those economic activity on, to, on a day to day basis is not a very sustainable. And like you said, you know, the world for sure is moving towards mm -hmm. heavier, heavier, more like digitization. And, you know, with the penetration of mobile phones, data usage, all of the things happening around, you know, it makes a lot more sense to think about money being entirely digital also. Would you say their motivation is primarily driven by the inclusion aspect? Or is it primarily driven by the let's regulate money aspect? I think honestly, is a very nuanced um, kind of perspective out there. And I think it's definitely driven by a combination of all these things. And I guess, you know, looking at central bank uh, published papers, there's a range of motivations that they cite. Those things are certainly important, but also to think about, say, how do you improve the resiliency of a payment system, right? You have like 
already the sort of the traditional wire transfers, you might have the real-time payments. What if you want to create another sort of parallel system that can complement all of the existing payment rails so that consumers have more choices, but also making your entire ecosystem resilient mm -hmm. in the sense if one system is not available, you can always go to something else. So all these ideas, I think, coming to into play together, and especially again, driven by this whole innovation happening in the blockchain space with crypto, with stable coins and okay. all of that. I think that's how it came about. Well, let, let me get a little bit of a picture on, you know, how this might land. Now, we say the word digital doesn't have to be a blockchain, but do you have a sense for like how these central banks would actually make a digital currency? Would it be through a blockchain? Would it be through a permissioned ledger? Would it live on a public blockchain? Is a blockchain anywhere a part of this? What's the temperature on the street here? That comes to the fundamental design for how CBDC should be done. And I think, um, you know, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlement, has released this survey that just says that this year, nine out of 10 countries will be doing experimentations around CBDC. So all these design choices of whether that's on a public blockchain or on a permission base, they will come into play. Well, firstly, I think it's super important for these experimentation to take place in the next one to two years time, because with this, we will understand a lot better. And I think, you know, in terms of all these design choices ultimately should address some fundamental policy objectives, which is what exactly are you trying to use this CBDC for? And that goes back to the uh, yeah. first question around motivation, because, you know, if my CBDC is trying to design for financial inclusion, then that might impact on what type of blockchains or non-blockchain solutions I might be using and what does the front and use of interface should look like. So let's put, trace it out. What are the policy objectives here? At least in the United States, or can we point to anything in specific? So the U.S., uh, the Federal Reserve, um, published this paper uh, around CBDC in January this year, and they cited four kind of characteristics that they would like to see in the U.S. dollar. So the number one is it should be privacy preserving, which is really good because they understand the importance of protecting consumer privacy, and they want to make sure that this. I'm is a little surprised. I would have thought that that wouldn't be top of the list. Frankly, I mean, the world's the governments are heading towards a not private stance in most other things. And so privacy is clearly a very important thing. And, you know, it's, it's great to see central bank addressing this like directly okay. and head on. It's good to see. So that's the number one characteristic to have privacy, right? The second is called intermediated. So what that means is that um, following the Federal Reserve's acts, the Federal Reserve is not going to provide direct access like retail accounts uh, that will sit with the Federal Reserve because it is the central bank and it regulates the financial entity. So it wants to be intermediated in the sense it wants the existing financial um, intermediaries as well as new fintechs and stuff to come and support CBDC when it comes to distribution. In the sense, the central bank will set the rules, the governance, the policy in creating the CBDC. But in terms of the distribution of that CBDC into the payment ecosystem, they want to rely on the intermediary. So that's the second notion of it being intermediated. Private market slash banks slash, yep, okay. Absolutely. And this, this is good because it encourages this true public-private partnership. We have to do this together in order to make it successful. And then the third, it says it's being transferable. So in the sense that they do intend to have this US digital dollar to be used on a mass scale for retail as well as for any other sort of uh, use cases. In the sense, they don't want to restrict this to some sort of wholesale uh, CBDC only, but make it general purpose. So maybe the first question before I get into the meat of this is, you know, do you think these central bank digital currencies will be interoperable with blockchains? Is that a explicit goal? Are they trying to basically take over the stablecoin regime that exists on blockchains today? Will existing stablecoins coexist with a central bank digital currency? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you might find my 
aren't so boring, but it does still come back to the use cases, like 100%. And the reason I say that is ultimately it is consumers who choose what type of money that they would use, right? Whether like in today's world, whether I decide to use a debit card versus Venmo versus credit card, that is my choice. I think in the future is going to be very similar in the sense, you know, you might be coming to a, say, emerging market in Brazil. They might want to use a central bank currency in the domestic usage, say a digital real or something. But when it comes to international cross-border related stuff, they might choose something like, say, USDC or maybe in the future, digital dollar and so on and so forth. So I think in the sense of which one is going to be winning versus which one is losing, I think, you know, it's really trying to figure out why would people use any one particular? And I think it's important for a central bank to think as well as it's important for any fintech doing stablecoin projects out there because you have to identify what is the use case, right? And with that, you can then start to think about the interoperability aspect because we do want to think about a world in the future in which CBDC can interoperate with CBDC, but CBDC should also interoperate with certain type of stablecoins. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to the tech. What does the tech stack would look like that enables you to do that? But to take that even one step broader in the sense we do have real-time payments. These are instant payments or things which is available 24-7 and you get paid in real time. So these technologies are already available today. But you are saying that there will be private market stablecoins. I think so. I mean, again, it's it's. I don't want to make the prediction, but I do think, you know. No, you heard it here first. It's set in stone now. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, you know, it goes back to the use case. I think there will be certain people who would prefer to use, say, a private stablecoin if that, say, allow them to have better access to yeah. the DeFi ecosystem, I mean, for example. I, I'm pointing at, like, will will the government squash it out of existence? And maybe, the, maybe in my head is, like, the what happened to Libra thing. Like, right. you know, they wanted to do it, and there was regulatory pressure, and they stopped doing it. So... What exactly happened there and and you know are they going to allow you know say usdc or other other sort of stable coins to coexist i do think the space is very young right in the sense that we are still seeing so many experimentations happening in real time mm. through stablecoin projects so I think it's really important, right, that we are seeing that regulators are taking a real look into the space, trying to think about the safeguards and rails that you should put around it and start to kind of figure out what are some of, say, the best practices, what are the the standards and stuff that you should be uh, looking out for. So I think, you know, with that in mind, um, that will help to propel the development because we have to understand, you know, how do we protect consumers? How do we allow, say, investors, whether that's retail investor or institutional investors, to really know what's the underlying risk? So you have to have some sort of process and good process management involved around it. And I think regulators uh, could play a re really helpful role in all of these uh, developments. Okay. Okay. I guess it's a bit of a wait and see. One of the policy objectives you highlighted was privacy. Mm -hmm. So I want I want to talk about this one in specific here. Sure. Um, are like is privacy going to be a first class citizen? Like how committed are they to that approach? And what's the technology stack they're going to use to ensure privacy? Yeah. So U.S. as I said just now, right in that paper, they have cited very clearly privacy is one of the four features that they want to. And actually, just to finish off, so the fourth feature that they say is mm -hmm. around identity. So you can see that privacy and identity actually. I would think about it two sides of the same coin because you want to be able to conduct compliance and regulation. So things like KYC, AML, they're absolutely necessary. But on the same time, you want to preserve certain aspects of consumer privacy. Now, just taking a just like 
like a worldview. Uh, the ECB, similar. Um, they released their digital euro paper back in 2020. They did this public response and asking people, out of these 10 potential criteria, what do you think is the most important thing that you would want to see as a feature in the digital euro? So they got over like 8,000 responses back through individuals, I don't know, public and stuff. And the top by a, a large margin is around privacy. So you can just see like in this developed world, right? Privacy is such an important aspect and it's impossible for regulators to ignore because being the public sector, you're trying to serve yeah. a public good. You're trying to serve what the people want. Yeah, I, I do imagine they're, they're stuck in a bit of a rock and a hard place though, because as you say, financial regulation is both very important to governments. I mean, you don't want terrorist financing. You don't want money laundering. You don't want to, st you want to stamp out bad behavior. But in order to do that, you have to know, generally speaking, the flows of money. Um, and so, I mean, the, the typical path might be just regulate the endpoints, but if it's a central bank digital currency and all transactions are private, how do you actually end up enforcing AML KYC laws? I want to ask you a question here. Do you expect CBDCs to be natively integrated with blockchains or to be some separate sort of permissioned ledger? And when I say blockchains, I do mean public blockchains that are decentralized and no single authoritarian control. You know, we spend a lot of time talking with central banks around this subject. And uh, one of the things that we tend to share with central banks is by looking at, you know, what's been happening in the uh, stablecoin ecosystem. We definitely do think, um, and I was in, in the panel earlier to talk about this, which is that you want to have a strong developer ecosystem in order to propel the success of the stablecoin. Why? Because these are the people who are actually building things, generating value, and trying to create that strong kind of- Getting demand. Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think the similar stuff can can be sort of thought through when it comes to central bank digital currencies because you want to cr i mean I, you know i think central banks should think about again you know if i want to start building uh things using cbdc's right creating this platform effect so that builders and developers will sort of the more kind of uh new type of private and fintech companies can come on board and start doing things then you want to make sure that your platform is open open looped rather than closed loop because as we have seen if any sort of payment rails and stuff being so heavily kind of closed loop is hard for fintechs and others to innovate so that notion of going through something more open looped i think could kind of be reflected as part of the design principles of how cbdc should be thinking about having said that if you're looking at all these central bank uh, pilots at, at the moment i think a large uh, proportion of uh, central banks are experimenting with some version of, say, uh, Ethereum compatible things, but they can be private, uh, they can be permission based. And what that really means is really you're creating a set of nodes in which the central bank can choose, you know, who are these set of nodes should be. They could be, say, the regulated financial institutions or trusted entities. But through that uh, trusted sort of permission based network, it can still be built on some sort of fundamental Ethereum or EVM compatible protocols. So in a sense, a CBDC can be very well be a ERC-20 token, right? And if you want to th think about that interoperability, I think if we share the same common standards, it might be easier in the future to have these flows to happen. I mean, I think the overall message I'm receiving here is, hey, it's really early. We're experimenting with all these things. We're going to let the policy objectives guide us. And hopefully it will incorporate a lot of these things we're talking about, including interoperability. The interesting thing to me though, right, is if you do create a permissioned version of Ethereum, you basically fork Ethereum and, and you control all the nodes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's basically a centralized ledger. In my head, I basically say, oh, that's Microsoft Excel. Like you got a spreadsheet, you're keeping track of balances. It's just a little fancy version of Excel, but it's a version of Excel. Now, what you're pointing at is, okay, well, this version of Excel still has all the capabilities to interact with Ethereum. Yeah. It's an ERC-20 token, it talks the same language. We can bring it over to Ethereum, right? 
right. the actual redemption of that token at the end of the day would come through a permission ledger and would be you know basically approved by the bank or you know some authorities of some sort, right? I think the choice around whether it's a permission based versus open, I, I think it does touch back to what does the central bank's governance and monetary policy rules would be, and that would dictate how they choose that. But then you know. Again, like, what do you want that CBDC to look like? Say CBDC can be programmable, right? And that that could be one of the the main we were talking about the motivation use cases. That could be one of the main reasons why cer certain central banks want that. And that's super interesting because you know, including the US, but also many other countries, we have very advanced sort of financial and payment ecosystem already. Now, thinking about the future of money, we might be thinking about the programmability feature of that, and that's super fascinating. And I think programmability is a lot more powerful if we can use smart contracts, build out entire projects out of it. Mm. Whereas the current programmability, which we have, is sort of say a, a standard orders and stuff which is very limited in terms of its usage so i think you know thinking about on what infrastructure therefore to build that cbdc and hence what does that future uh features like programmability could entail that could help the central bank to think about well should i be using blockchain should i not but yeah, yeah i think this yeah. is still pretty early <laughs> as you say um and i think also i want to add a line which is you know we don't know ultimately if central banks will will we not issue a cbdc but what we do know is that in the next few years, super important to have this debate. And it's important to have the technologists, the policymakers, and all these entrepreneurs to come together and to really start thinking about testing, validating different points to figure out. Yeah, I mean, my overall take here too is it's a little bit bullish for crypto just because it's prompting these discussions. Maybe maybe my, my in my head, like I'm still a little bit curious to hear like what your picture of the future is here. So mm -hmm. it's hard to say, right? Because we're, we're still debating all these things. Yeah. But if you had to paint a reasonable picture for what a fully functioning CBDC would look like mm -hmm. five years down the road, mm -hmm. maybe two or three, I don't know, some reasonable point of time down the road. Yeah. What does it look like and, and how does it interact with with you know crypto? I love this question and I think I have plenty of things um, we can share here because firstly we can already look at what stablecoin use cases are already being used and that could have a big sort of idea about the future of CBDC. So if you're looking at the use cases for stablecoins today, for example, the use say in high value B2B use flows, say a VC doing funding or uh, they can do it in stablecoins and you can pay your vendor cross-border and stuff like that in stablecoins instead of the traditional fiat. And I think in the future, you know, we're looking at more innovative flows, for example, micropayments, which is super, super fascinating. Yeah. And I think Stripe came out in April talking about this micropayment pilot that they want to do to kind of pay creators on Twitter in these micropayments uh, fashion. And we're also seeing things like, you know, streaming payrolls. How could I pay your salary in minutes, even seconds? These are the really- The protocol, if you want to go down the Ethereum rabbit hole. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think these are super interesting things that was never possible before, but these things Things could maybe enable certain use cases, maybe can identify certain pain points in the current market uh, to help facilitate. So that's that, right? And I think to share a bit more in terms of the broader picture of what CBDC could enable. So we already know these stablecoin use cases. There's also things I talked about in terms of financial inclusion. So the way the central banks are thinking about financial inclusion aspect and how CBDC could address that, again, going back to this notion of a digital version of cash, what's the main feature of cash? Cash is offline. Cash is the fact that if I pay you, you get that, you get paid instant and with finality. And some privacy. Exactly. So how do we enable that in a digital ecosystem? 
And so there's a lot of research and I want to do a plug here because we actually published this research called the Offline Payment System. And what we're trying to envision there is really trying to think about between two devices, it could be two mobile devices, how could you do point-to-point -point payments entirely in an offline fashion through Bluetooth or NFC, so near field communication technology. So these are very interesting uh, potential use cases. For interesting, okay. Now in my head, as you talk about all this, um, I mean, you know, it seems pretty pretty exciting here. But I want to I want to actually see if I can get crystal clear on what the difference between a CBDC would be and something like USDC. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, because USDC could essentially uh, kind of accomplish all these things as well if we have private market innovations around, you know, micropayments and whatnot. Yeah. But the underlying infrastructure, a C, uh, USDC essentially is a digital version of the dollar. Correct. So what is the functional difference between the two? So I think there will be a lot of demands for things like stablecoins for USDC and such. I think it's looking at really other countries, right? Other countries who are who want a combination of both the local currency available entirely in digital format, as well as some sort of dollar format in which they can get access to that dollar market. So I think for these countries or citizens, they might want to have the demand for both. But yeah. Hmm. Okay. So it's more looking at other countries then. All right. Inside the United States, though, the difference between a USDC and a central bank digital currency at the end of the day to the end consumer feels very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a super interesting and we're looking forward to see how the Fed and the regulators are thinking about all these sort of frameworks and how are they really thinking about if a digital dollar is to become like a reality, how would that interoperate with USDC? That's super fascinating. I have no answer. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this is why it's important for the Fed to start studying and doing experimentation around the digital dollar. And really, I mean, you know, we of all the stable coins, like I think more than 90% of these stable coins currently are denominated in USD already. So to think about that and then in relation to a digital dollar, that's a super important question. Well, it's a bit of a land grab too. I mean, look, if the United States come out with, um, I mean, we already kind of have it with USDC, by the way, but you know, either a blessing on the private market stable coins or their own version of a CBDC, we can debate which one's better and whatnot. But you know, there's a bit of a land grab because the uh, reserve money of the cryptocurrency world <laughs> is kind of up for grabs. Now, right. globally, it's USD. And so obviously, USD has, yeah. I think, a big head start in cryptocurrency as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I guess, added fuel to the fire to try to figure this out and throw the weight of the government support behind something if possible. Absolutely. Okay. I want to take this uh, wild card direction. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been asked this question before. Maybe you have or not, but let's find out. <laughs> I want to paint a picture. So one thing that I notice, um, the emergence of DeFi on Ethereum and the mm -hmm. emergence of USDC mm -hmm. is that, well, USDC and any central bank digital currency is at the end of the day controlled by the banks that issue those that currency. So mm -hmm. for USDC to be worth $1, well, the bank that actually holds the dollar on behalf of USDC has to be able to redeem it for a dollar. Right. Now, we've seen that USDC is integrated into DeFi. It's in a whole bunch of different protocols and it's got a tentacles wrapped in everything, right? Or at least we kind of think it is. If there were to be a fork of Ethereum, suddenly there's two versions, there's a disagreement on the miners and which fork is correct, and we have two competing versions of Ethereum, well, USDC cannot be worth a dollar on both forks. It's only worth a dollar on one fork and zero dollars on the other. You can't split USDC and call it 50 cents each. You have to pick. Interesting. And so the people that control USDC or the banks, or in this case, a central bank digital currency would be a government, mm -hmm. they have the power to choose which fork is redeemable for the true value of USDC or a central bank digital currency. That's the that's the subtext. <laughs> See where I'm going with this, maybe. But the question here is like, look, doesn't that seed a pretty decent amount of power and control to 
a stablecoin issuer basically enable them to choose which fork is canonical and which is not. Because if they pick this chain, mm -hmm. the other chain's USDC is worth zero, well, it's going to be really painful for that chain to unwind all the USDC liability that exists or right. all the central bank digital currency that exists. So in my head, the overall frame here is that, you know, we get these centralized sort of, you know, products and stable coins onto a decentralized infrastructure. Well, it's actually not easy to unwind that. And we're actually seeding some measure of control there in that process. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Again, I'm springing it on you. I'm just thinking about it in my head. First time, and this is a super fascinating. Um, I I actually never thought about this uh, thing about the fork and the valuation of stablecoins. Honestly, I, I think I need time just to yeah. kind of figure out <laughs> like, what's the implication for CBDC. I guess I can only make some sort of assumptions and uh, yeah, like I think firstly, you know, stablecoin are private issued money, right? Now, the thing is certain stable coins are more sort of decentralized stable coins versus some more other stable coins are more centralized. So in a way, I think the um, the sort of confluence there is like, well, if you want to have a centralized stable coin, but you're building on decentralized infrastructure, and then there's the fork, who is making that decision and choosing that, which then goes back, say, to the foundation, whoever mm -hmm. is the issue of that. So that's kind of interesting what you're saying there. I don't know what that really means, right? Yeah. Dude. Yeah, can, can I offer some thoughts on this too? Because yeah. again, I kind of sprung it on you here. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about this in my head and I actually got to call out um, Hasib Kreshi from Dragonfly who uh -huh. first articulated this point, or okay. at least him and his team over there. This is actually a couple years back, but it's been percolating in my head ever since. The underlying point though, is that when we have more centralized structures interact with decentralized architecture like blockchains, there are second order tertiary effects. Mm -hmm. And it's not super clear to think through what those effects are or the circumstances by which they might rear their ugly head. Right. And so as central banks are considering, oh, the role of a digital currency and how to think through the implications, like, I would hope that they actually spend a lot of time thinking about all the technical implications behind those decisions. And the like the likelihood here is like, hey, you know, there's going to be things that pop up that are unexpected. And mm -hmm. there might be, you know, second order effects that nobody predicted and nobody planned for. Yeah. And I just, you know, we're all in this giant experiment together. <laughs> and so we got to expect, you know, maybe some bumps in the road. The one thing I will say about this particular phenomenon, though, is, you know, in the event of a fork, it's a, it's going to be unlikely because forks are incev heavily incentivized never to occur because of this very fact, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that actually kind of makes Ethereum a little bit unforkable because, well, you know, you basically have USDC has control, right? Yeah. But it's not necessarily USDC has control. It's any centralized influence has to act in concert with every other centralized inst institution, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or else we have disagreements. Let's say Tether says that the other chain is one dollar, and USDC says it's you know chain B. Right. Well, then it's super messy. Right. And so the reality is there's going to be a lot of pressure and a lot of weight to go one direction. And I'm not necessarily sure if one individual, you know, institution can actually swim upstream and go against the general consensus. Yeah. Very interesting things to think about, right? Super interesting, because now you get me really thinking yeah. <laughs> about all these stablecoin dynamics and what could it be if yeah. there's forks and stuff? I mean, no idea. But like to your point, you know, you're going to have these bigger centralized forces that could help to drive that direction. I would even think, you know, despite proof of stake, all of that, I think you're still going to have these sort of major players who can, you know, drive the directions. Yeah. But then going going back to CBDC, I, I think, you know, CBDC is very, very clearly defined in the sense that the governance is coming from central banks. Central banks don't even have to do the physical minting on a smart contract themselves. But, you know, the ultimate rules and governance are being set by central banks. So in a way, it's cleaner in the way how that should be run. And then, you know, if you trust the central bank, which I think many normal citizens and people, they do then you follow the rules in which that is the governance trusting that this is going to be safe reliable and allowing you to use it 
transferable, right? That's the the word. Um, then you know, if there's a fork or other thing, I don't know if <laughs> central banks are thinking about that, but I think the rule should still coming from this one source, and that's how it could go. Yeah. So hey, I, yeah. Open questions, though, right? That's like the Absolutely. fun part about crypto is there's a lot of open questions, and you know, we don't always have the answers. In fact, it's a giant experiment. We're all in together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the the you know, the confluence of centralized forces and decentralized infrastructure is very fascinating one to think Absolutely. about. Absolutely. I want to actually return a little bit, though, and, and maybe to wrap this up in a certain way. Um, I think my takeaway from all of this is that, you know, if we did have a central bank digital currency or at least a form of money of like actual fiat money that lived on digital rails mm -hmm. and was integrated with blockchains, it would be a massive step function increase in the efficiency of those systems. Mm -hmm. And so there is a quite a significant economic um, unlock to be had here if we can achieve this. 100% agree. I'm bullish about what's already happening on Ethereum. We've got a lot of different stable coins, you know, blockchains in general, not just Ethereum, um, because I think it's it's helping to pave that road. My head towards the CBDC goes towards, well, okay, like if a central bank decides to build open infrastructure and integrate it with the blockchain, that is incredibly bullish for blockchains because it's huge weight behind this industry as a whole, and it will only increase the speed of adoption. Mm -hmm. And if blockchains get adopted, well, then we're actually solving a lot of things in the economic, you know, equality front, the economic efficiency front, economic freedom front, all of this stuff. Yeah. So I, to that degree, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Likewise, I, I share your excitement. Um, and I think you touch on a really key word, which is this adoption. And I think it's just same for any new technology being introduced. How do you really drive people to adopt it? And, you know, as a payment service provider, we also think about acceptance in the sense, how do you let business and merchants easy, uh, easily accept that new form of money? We already see stablecoins has not really reached that mainstream adoption yet because the, these are the frictions, real frictions yeah. we're facing. Again, these are the lessons we're learning, we're observing. We can pass it to, you know, kind of help to to support central banks in the future around how to make CBDC successful. But ultimately, it goes back to who are using it, who are adopting it, and how do we make that whole experience as seamless as we could? Yep, yep. I think people sometimes can get kind of, you know, too focused on one or two aspects. I mm -hmm. imagine that the CBDC debate is actually a pretty contentious one because of the privacy concerns, because right. of the centralization concerns. The, but they might be neglecting the adoption, right? Yeah. And you know, say what you want about Libra. I thought it was a great effort. I thought mm -hmm. I was excited about it. But one of the main reasons why I was excited was, my God, look, we're going to be putting blockchain wallets in so many people's hands. Mm -hmm. And that's going to just accelerate the adoption. And in my mind, look, the adoption of cryptocurrency and blockchains is almost the most important metric to follow. Because if it gets adopted, it gets so much harder to unwind. And the potential in this industry is so phenomenally great and can impact the world in so many powerful dimensions exactly. that that's what I'm excited about. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't agree more, right? Because I think, you know, we see all these DeFi um, innovations, which is fantastic. But, you know, in terms of how is that spillover effect into the real economy is slow, it's limited. So how do we make that faster? And what are the synergies between the real world and this digital world and how we can make it better? I think these are the really super yeah. important questions to think. So did we miss any big discussion points? And <laughs> No, I, I think you you have put me on the spot around that stablecoin question. But Hold I, you the fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think it's a really fascinating uh, like space. And all we want to encourage is to have these more open dialogues between the private sector, the public, but also really, you know, within the crypto ecosystem to have more discussions with the builders, the developer talking about, yeah. because ultimately innovation helped to, to help to uh, support policy. But on the other hand, policy can also help to direct where the true innovations and resources should be should be going towards. So hopefully we can have more education among ourselves and just getting those conversation going. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
give us a comment, tweet at me on Twitter. Let me know if we answered all the questions or asked all the questions. This is, I think, a very fascinating topic in crypto as we've discussed. And as always, shoot us a like or a follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and catch us on the web, coinbase.com slash around the block. You'll find all past podcast episodes, in-depth research, and a lot more. Until next week, see you then. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. <laughs>